Hello and welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. Each week we bring the most interesting conversations from around the media industry. Before we get started, I'm always keen to hear your thoughts on the show and what topics and guests you'd like to hear more about. Email me on jacob at journalism.co.uk. Right, let's get into it. Today we're talking about the threats and abuse that women journalists face all around the world and who has the power to create change. Our guest is Kieran Nazish, the founder of the Coalition for Women in Journalism, a non-profit organisation which supports women around the world through mentorship, research and advocacy work. Its recent study documented rising cases of violence against women internationally in the single month of May 2021. It found 70 such cases, including the killing of Palestinian journalist Arima Saad, the abduction of Nigerian journalist Amra Ahmed Diska, and many examples of women being wrongly detained, threatened, attacked physically, abused online, and the list goes on. And this directly results in press freedom concerns as it threatens to silence women. But there's a simple but vital message. We cannot stop shining a light on these injustices. We'll discuss working with policymakers to find solutions, developing newsroom systems to support staff, and stay tuned to the very end for some motivational tips. All that's to come, but first, this. As well as great editorial content, Journalism.co.uk is helping to foster innovation in local newsrooms. We have launched a mentorship scheme aimed at local UK journalists who are paired up with an industry expert to help them launch new projects around storytelling, AI, memberships and much, much more. The deadline closes on the 25th of July 2021 and we'd hate for you to miss out. For more information and how to apply, visit the Journalism.co.uk website and look under the training tab. Kieran, welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. It's great to have you on the show. Can you give our listeners a snapshot of what your work setup looks like at the moment? I am in Canada right now. I'm actually at my university campus where I teach. Um, and uh, we shifted uh, everything. Uh, you know, now I have a home office. So, um, But sometimes I do get to use my other office as well. Um, because of the pandemic, we haven't uh, been working from offices generally, so we're all we've been able to improvise and uh, take everything online. And as you probably know, our team works around the world, so we are in every time zone. We like to say we're all awake, um, you know, with the sun at all times. Twenty-four hours of sun. Then, how is work generally? Work is busy. Uh, the pandemic has been really busy, especially you know April, May, two nineteen. We started getting a lot more busy. Uh, we actually had several new hires um, in our research team for the press freedom research team because of the pandemic. There were two kinds of, um, you know, influx of greater work. One, you know, uh, how women journalists around the world have been affected by the pandemic. So, uh, you know, in the in the first few months, we were just hearing a lot about, you know, women reporters and freelancers, especially getting affected, uh, you know, by the lockdowns and having to improvise their beat oftentimes. So the first few months were like caught up in documenting that, assisting in that work. And then soon we started seeing uh, rise of protests, you know, from Lebanon to the US, as you know, Black Lives Matter. Um, and then Eastern Europe this year as well, like we have been very caught up covering Eastern Europe and Middle East because of, you know, how essentially in the last one and a half year, we've seen how essentially the political climate around the world has changed and how that affects women reporters and LGBTQ journalists, especially because 
most of these journalists are, you know, they don't work in newsrooms, they're freelancers, so that they're more vulnerable. And that that means that we we are just busy all the time um, talking to journalists and figuring out uh, what's going on and how to assist them. Yeah, that sets up our conversation quite well, um, Kieran. You've you have been very busy. The coalition has come out with this report looking at the press freedom status for women journalists around the world. And indeed, you've documented, I think, seventy cases of violence um, in in the in the single month of May twenty twenty one. To call it what it is, this report, the the findings of this report are tragic, troubling, and and pretty appalling. Um, we're talking about one woman being killed, one abducted many, many more being you know, attacked, impeded, detained, um, physically assaulted, ab- abused online. I think the, the question I'd like to start with, Kieran, is when you look at these findings, is any of this surprising to you? Or is this kind of just confirmation of what you've known for a long time? Or is there anything in there which really shocked and surprised you? Well, it's both. And you're absolutely right. It is surprising. Uh, let's go back to April. In April, we documented 51 cases of violations. We documented one um, murder of a journalist who was killed in her apartment in the United States, Aviva Okensen Haberson. Um, And she was killed in a strange circumstance where the bullet hit her and she died. And the police is still investigating and we're still following that. But we need to know more about that case. Um, And there were 51 violations. These included, you know, abductions. These included imprisonments, raids, physical assaults. We're not only talking about online violence. We're talking about offline violence that happens in the physical world and how women reporters get uh, obstructed um, doing their work physically. And sometimes that is physically violent. Um, Then from April to May, there was an increase of cases. We documented 70 cases, as you mentioned. So and in in this month, as we all know, in in May, Palestine was there was political situation was really hot in Palestine. And obviously, we documented the most number of cases were in Palestine. We were not surprised by that. Um, But we were disappointed because a lot of these cases of how women reporters were getting targeted um, in the field, physically assaulted, were not being documented you know, widely um, by a lot of other organizations. And that brings me to the issue of when women reporters, especially when they're freelancers, um, it is difficult for those cases to be able to um, get the spotlight, um, the attention that it needs, because a lot of these women work for local channels. Um, It's hard to uh, verify a lot of the work unless there are networks that are set up. So we get all of our information from these networks and we're we're, we're grateful for, for all the women reporters who kind of help us find that information because otherwise we wouldn't know um, the landscape. Right, right. There's 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 a lot there to unpack. So let's let's kind of um, zoom in on this a little bit. I'm wary of coming at this t- with too broad of a brush. So maybe can you unpick where are the very important uh, nuances and complexities that we really need to understand in order to to discuss this properly? I think that there is a certain general uh, understanding which is fair and correct, but not um, complete in it, in the sense that is that women get targeted in the industry in a different way. We know from online trolling and the examples we see every day online in the in the online space that women journalists get targeted in a gendered manner because we can visibly see those attacks and there's a lot of documentation. But what we are also documenting, you know, at the coalition is 
you know, when our team is working with reporters in Turkey, when women journalists are, you know, uh, either, you know, assaulted by the police, uh, physical assaults, uh, raided, taken to prison, and when they are in courtrooms. So when our researchers are following these cases, um, we see that very visibly that that gendered attacks also are coming from the state. We see similar in Pakistan. We see similar in Mexico. We, in Pakistan, for example, we have seen government officials. Uh, of course, there are misinformation campaigns that we now know that certain governments and states are, you know, uh, investing in. You know, misinformation is a huge business for a lot of authoritarian governments. We see that in countries like Pakistan, where you know, you know, women are not equal in that country. Uh, we see that the government plays on that and they try to government officials themselves have been getting on board in creating misinformation campaigns against women journalists. So what in this thread, what I'm trying to say is that um, there is, you know, general misogyny that is at play when it comes to attacking women journalists. But when we look at press freedom and the states being responsible um, for press freedom attacks, we're seeing that certain countries, certain states have recognized, uh, you know, the benefit of targeting women reporters in a gendered manner to to sort of create misinformation. Um, you know, essentially, women journalists have become scapegoats for um, certain governments. And then in that in that, you know, scenario, where do newsrooms come in? Where do um, support systems come in? Um, I think that, you know, there's much more work that, that needs to be done from the industry, within the industry, you know, on behalf of newsrooms to support women um, who are reporting for them and when they get attacked. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense because, you know, men are assassinated, men are abducted, men are victim of online abuse as well. But what you're saying is the case of violence against women is is certainly more orchestrated. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. It is more orchestrated. I would say when, say, a state attacks, uh, wants to target a journalist, whether they are male or female, they usually want to orchestrate that. I think what certain governments are able to play at, certain states are uh, who don't want press freedom in their country are playing at is misogyny because misogyny has been there in societies and in communities for a long time. And this is, you know, you know how populism work. Essentially, this creates a wave of support. So, you know, playing on misogyny has is benefiting some states and they have recognized that. And can you detail exactly the reality for a lot of these women journalists that, that you were talking about there becoming, um, I suppose, a, a, a pawn in this misinformation campaign? Yes, I think that this is it's so um, diverse. We see that depending on the culture, um, you know, in, in a certain country, how women journalists essentially themselves work in an industry. Uh, we see different kind of outcomes of these attacks. So, for example, in Turkey, we see Kurdish women journalists who get targeted a lot only because they cover the Kurdish violence in the southeast, which the government wants to, you know, remember that these governments are actually when they're targeting journalists, they actually want they want to silence something. They want censorship on an issue or a story. They don't want journalists to expose you know, dangerous things that governments are doing, right? So if you look at the example of Turkey, we see that Kurdish women journalists, when they are targeted, they are themselves um, there to support each other, but the industry does not. 
we see that in Turkey, mainstream media doesn't often cover the various, uh, you know, there, there are about 50 women reporters who have gone to prison or have been in prison without trial in Turkey from Kurdish minority. Um, and we see that the mainstream media doesn't cover and support them. So then they create their own small community. Is it effective? It's hard to say. We don't think that it's it's effective because these journalists are essentially time and time again going to prison. Yesterday, it was Eid in Turkey, you know, Bayram, the, the Muslim holiday, and three women journalists got physically assaulted by the police um, just, you know, out of the blue because they were out reporting on something. Um, and was that covered in the mainstream media? No, it wasn't. So the, so there's that kind of environment. And then you see countries like Pakistan or Mexico or France, where women journalists create a larger community and they come together. In Pakistan, we've seen women reporters come together nationally and, and you know, take uh, petitions. We've been involved in working on several projects with women reporters in Pakistan with our team as well, which includes taking a delegation to the government and making the government accountable. But it's, it's interesting that you're starting to use examples not just from the global south, you're talking about France, and I think indeed in the report there's examples from the US and the United Kingdom. This is This is happening internationally, let's be clear. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I do. I, I know that a lot of the examples are, you know, imprisonments can take place in Iran, Turkey. These are the countries, Saudi Arabia. These are top countries, China. Right. But we also see physical assaults like in the last 2019 and 2020 under Donald Trump's administration during the Black Lives Matter protests. Um, we have seen a lot of violence, police violence, as well as president, um, you know, saying bad things um, to women journalists, right? Um, so we've seen this kind of tendency of misogyny and playing that gender uh, attack, attacking women journalists in particular and playing on the gender. You know, so one of our more most concerning cases um, is in Northern Ireland, where women journalists not only get attacked and targeted online, uh, but we, we have seen uh, graffiti in Northern Ireland with names of women journalists. Um, Patricia Devlin, you probably have seen her name. Her name has been, you know, uh, graffitied on walls with the bullet sign uh, to threaten her into silence. And she keeps speaking. There are several other women reporters as well in Northern Ireland who've been targeted that way. Our concerns are not only in the Middle East, uh, where you see, you know, visible conflict like Palestine, Lebanon, you know, Turkey, or it's not only in South Asia, India, Pakistan, these are the countries, Afghanistan, but it's also in Europe, um, you know, Eastern Europe, Belarus became, you know, a huge concern. We also um, sometimes get involved when we can in assisting women reporters when they are in an emergency. And we had to work on three cases from Belarus where women reporters have been taken to prison. Um, and some of them are freelancers. So you won't see a lot about that, you know, publicly. The, the issues of freelancers is, is is quite a serious one that we will, of course, come back to. Uh, just to understand, I mean, who, wh which kind of women actually get wrapped up into this? Who are most prone? Is it just like um, your high profile public facing journalists? Is it those with large Twitter followers or is it just everyday journalists? Uh, that's a very good question. So the answer is all of them. In some countries, we can visibly see where, where high profile women journalists are being targeted because the government wants a narrative. It's happening in Pakistan. We've seen that in India. We've seen that in Turkey. F Philippines, Maria Ressa, of course. Exactly. I was going to say the Philippines. And then there's this other 
parallel uh, problem going on where women journalists were freelancers or working not very prominent names. In the Philippines, we know five women reporters right now who are being um, targeted, uh, threatened by government officials, uh, but they work for smaller news organizations. Um, these new news organizations don't back them. So these women are very afraid. So while we're having the conversation in the Philippines and we all know about Maria Ressa and how she's being targeted, the government is not just targeting her. They're also targeting other women reporters who are in much more vulnerable situation and they don't have access to the support networks or support. And I think this is a good example because this is happening everywhere. It's happening in Pakistan, Mexico, Turkey. We, we all know now that a lot of journalists now live in exile, right, um, from some of the countries where, you know, governments have been difficult to journalists. And so while these journalists are in exile, the journalists who are back home are still being targeted and there's still repression. And supporting those journalists is really important. And we that's what we want to be able to do to build um, support systems that can sort of also be there for journalists who are most vulnerable. Mm. So our message could be, don't just look for, you know, the, the big names who are being wrapped into this, really try and find who are the, those uh, being, uh, how shall I say, going under the radar. Yes, we should certainly not uh, forget about what's happening in Myanmar, apart from the political situation that we see where we are seeing the arrests of politicians, uh, public representatives, activists, and journalists, women journalists are particularly being targeted. And the several women reporters that, you know, we are in touch with, they are very afraid to be taken and also for the for for the safety of their other colleagues who are in unknown locations. So there are things like that going on. And it's very difficult to have support on the ground because of, you know, getting in and out of the country. So, you know, we want to a be able to figure out how do we try to support journalists who are in those conditions and b realistically be able to you know make support accessible to all kinds of journalists so that's that's a good message before we do move on to the to the question of what can be done about this this problem are there any other findings from this study that you would stress emphasize and say we need to pay close attention to this this is this is really serious Yes, I think that um, definitely, you know, in our press freedom newsroom, we cover violations from 92 countries now. And, um, you know, a, a majority of these violations are taking place physically. So, you know, like I said, raids, there are arrests, there are pre-trial, um, uh, without trial imprisonments. Um, and one thing that we should pay attention to is especially looking at how different states are using gender when women journalists get targeted, uh, whether it's a it's you know it's a raid or a physical assault um, or it's a court trial. They're not alone. They have families, um, whether they are single or you know they they have they are married. Um, we consistently see women journalists their families getting affected. I think that governments realize that, right? Um, because we see governments targeting women reporters, their families as well. Uh, we have several cases of women reporters in Iran, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, where some of the women who are in exile or are in prison in those countries, their families are contacted by government officials and threatened. So um, I think the one thing that we need to pay attention to is that when we are looking at press freedom, uh, A, we need to remember the women and LGBTQ journalists, especially the ones we don't know who are invisible, who are not the prominent journalists. They're the most vulnerable. And secondly, we need to 
work together on building systems that would support them realistically, which includes, you know, understanding that when women are targeted, their families are affected, their communities affected, um, and and to be able to work, um, you know, on support systems that sort of accommodates that. Yeah, that sounds like a really significant point. Do you have any inclination of what that system might look like, where we might get started to build that? Well, I mean, first of all, we are doing some work with a few other organizations. You know, it would take a lot of effort from a lot of people. Um, So, for example, we tried thinking about what can we do in Pakistan or Turkey, like where different scenarios have emerged. And what we have come up with is every place has its own um, difficulties, but it also has its own opportunities. So in, in some countries, for example, we are working with public representatives. Um, in Turkey, we have collaborated with different stakeholders, and that includes lawyers, journalists, um, you know, human rights defenders, but also public representatives, opposition members who would help us lobby, uh, you know, A, raise awareness about this issue. You know, we, um, you know, our our work has been spoken about and the challenges and our, and our, what our reports represent have been spoken about in the parliament in Turkey uh, by one of um, you know, our allies um, in the Turkish parliament to raise the issue and make the government from the inside accountable. Um, similarly, in Pakistan, uh, we've tried helping, uh, working on a law to protect journalists to get the government involved. So we know that in a lot of these places, governments are involved. So we want to get people in the government who are interested in democracy, who are working on building their own democracies to ally with us and and work together. Um, because, you know, without, you know, we, we, we can't be on the opposite sides. We have to work together. So that's one thing. But that is something that can practically work in some countries and, and not in others. For example, we cannot do this in China. We have un- been unable to find any allies in China um, So or in Saudi Arabia, for that mm-hmm. matter. So, you know, I think that it's important to look at what kind of system works where and then improvise on that. So, I mean, I, I get the sense you're saying creating change from the inside very much to create that wider policy, that legal framework. Well, you know, the governments are mostly responsible for press freedom attacks. So we want to make them accountable. I know that there is a lot of already international effort of getting newsrooms involved um, uh, as well. And, and newsrooms have gotten involved because of that effort. Um, also, I just want to point out that, you know, in Europe, for example, we partner with Vera Jirova. Um, you know that she's been doing some really important work. Um, and, you know, so those kind of people exist. You know, uh, Vera's example is good because we all know her work. And there are those kind of people who are, you know, in different countries, in different regions. And we need to identify those people and work with them because, uh, you know, press freedom attacks are about power. Um, and, you know, that th- these are political changes. So we do need to get people who are in the government um, involved in this work. How difficult is it to spot allies and sort of work with them? It's uh, really relative. It can be very difficult. Um, I mean, I won't name the countries, but we are kind of working with a few governments right now to try to create pathways for exiled journalists, for example, right? So when journalists get targeted, there are lots of journalists who are being targeted, women reporters are being targeted. And, you know, working with, uh, depends on the governments, um, if there is intent and efficiency. I think that Europe is a much more efficient space um, to work in than the United States or Canada. I see. Um, based on your work so far, are there any signs of improvement? Any signs of hope so far? Yes, I think that um, there's a question you earlier asked about, like, were you surprised to see all these numbers? And I will go back into that, that thread 
that first of all, I want to say it's really surprising to see the increase of violations, you know, press freedom violations in general, and then how women and LGBTQ are targeted because they're more vulnerable, right? So it's it's a really over, you know, I won't lie, it's a really overwhelming situation. It's depressing sometimes, you know, our team you know, sometimes we are all going through a lot of emotions, like covering Iran from Iran to United States. Like it's really, it's an urgent situation. Some, something new is also happening, and th- that is interested parties, uh, which is people like Vera Jourova, for example, or people who are uh, interested in working on press freedom, and they understand that we do need. Um, you know, equal and free uh, space for journalists around the world. And I think that there's much more collaboration. And in that, I think there's hope in the collaboration. If that collaboration takes place effectively and efficiently, uh, we will be able to um, improve the situation. If we're not able to efficiently utilize the, these efforts that are now emerging internationally, we will fail and there it will be dark from here. Let's come back to your earlier point, which was really interesting around how freelancers and, and those very isolated journalists are affected in this situation. What support do they need? I would say majority of women reporters um, around the world are freelancers. Uh, majority of LGBTQ journalists as well are freelancers. So there's a huge population of freelancers who are not accommodated by newsrooms or newsrooms and they don't benefit from you know the newsroom structures right we have established that already newsrooms are facing a great challenge where newsrooms are targeted they're underfunded they you know all that stuff right um and then you have freelancers who have no access to these resources right so in that what freelancers can do which is what we work on um is is to we because we work with women and lgbtq journalists we have support networks these are essentially networks of um 4 to 500 journalists in different countries where we have those networks um so we have a network in middle east we have one in turkey uh, afghanistan iraq uh, pakistan india mexico um and then we have a general international one um and so the these, these networks, you know, are important because when a journalist is targeted or is is facing a difficulty, they don't need to be targeted. They want to report on something that's difficult. They can uh, use the support of, you know, fellow journalists and find access to resources and be in the same group. Uh, one of the greatest reasons why our work has been effective um, and that we are able to even find the information that we are able to document is because of those networks, because journalists are connected. When they're connected, they're able to inform each other about what they're facing, and then they're able to have access to resources. And I think that's one of the most important things. It's not sufficient. I don't think it is. I, I don't think, I think there's a lot more work to be done. But I think, you know, yeah, I think that uh, resources should go more into, you know, supporting journal- journalist networks. I mean, we can't understate the importance of having um, solidarity and, and support networks in place. It's so important um, to remember because, you know, we only have, like, say, a few hundred journalists in, in each network, right? And in every country, um, including Afghanistan, there's thousands of journalists, right? And so I, I want to emphasize that, A, we don't, have, we, we don't have the resources for all journalists. There are a lot of journalists who are just on their own. And I would say from my experience when I was, I was getting threats in Pakistan, which kind of led me to, to do this work, is I was uh, alone and it was a very competitive industry and there was misinformation about, you know, 
the work that I did uh, as a journalist, as you know, as it was the case with a lot of my colleagues. And uh, when you have that kind of environment, you are on your own and you don't know how to reach you. And if you are threatened by a country, a state, then that kind of isolation can lead to a lot of difficult things. We see that with a lot of women reporters who, especially in certain places, the southern Turkey or Syrian exile journalists or Iranian exile journalists, where, um, you know, if they don't have the support system, they are very vulnerable. And that affects them mentally. That affects the journalism that they can do that we do we all need in this current you know um space so um so i you know i can't emphasize enough on support systems i really believe in them what specific mechanisms can newsrooms incorporate to support journalists in this situation newsrooms depending on where newsrooms are they have to understand you know what they can do to support um, you know, journalists and then find, you know, find their way. Sometimes newsrooms can have mentorship programs, support systems, uh, you know, uh, legal support for their journalists. Just being there for your reporter who's going going out and, and getting the story um, sometimes at great risk um, to be able to be there, um, you know, for your reporter um, is very important. And I think sometimes newsrooms see their report this is the, um, and let's talk about canada united states like i speak to journalists every day and sometimes like we are facing great challenges where newsrooms have a disconnect of understanding their responsibility um so you know including newsrooms who do have mechanisms for safety when it comes to state violations, say like there is the RCMP targeting journalists, not letting them in in Canada right now in certain locations. So newsrooms are going to get on board and they're going to create a lot of noise about, you know, against the, the authorities and all that stuff. But then a lot of the violations and lack of support comes from within the newsrooms. And from our perspective, I tell you every day, speaking to journalists, especially in the U.S. and Canada and some European countries, Journalists are really frustrated with how newsrooms don't want to take responsibility for their safety and well-being within the newsroom. Um, and I think that newsrooms need to, you know, rework their attitude towards reporters. Uh, newsrooms have an obligation to support their reporters. And without journalists, newsrooms cannot, you know, do the work that they do. So, you know, without supporting your journalists, you cannot be you cannot be bringing news to the public. And I think that newsrooms need to be more responsible about that as an attitude. And I think that if that attitude applies to all newsrooms anywhere around the world, then we will find solutions from all kinds of solutions, from safety solutions to well-being solutions within newsrooms. I see. And just just to clarify that one, why is there reluctance for, for newsrooms to handle this situation? I think this is probably decades, if not like a century old uh, temperament of a newsroom where newsrooms think reporters, they're not, you know, they don't take responsibility for reporters. Uh, I think this is more like a behavioral newsroom, behavioral thing, the competitive industry, breaking news, uh, da, 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 you know, like I think that that and, and we do see that actually, you know, we, we can take some example from smaller newsrooms where newsrooms have supported their reporters and they've been able to do great journalism. Uh, just this year, one of our members, Megha Raja Gopalan, who's at BuzzFeed News, got the Pulitzer. Um, and, and that is because her newsroom, uh, which works untraditionally, supports her. BuzzFeed is one of the new, one of the examples of many new newsrooms we're seeing, which kind of 
are, are come from a different kind of mindset and they work differently with their reporters. They give more liberty to the reporters. They provide resources. If the journalist says, I want to cover the story and I really believe in it, newsrooms need to invest in that. If the journalist says, I'm really afraid to go out there um, and I, I don't I don't feel safe. Can you buy me a vest? The attitude should be to support journalists because without journalists, there there is going to be no newsroom. Yeah. So top of your wish list, what, what what's there? Top of my wish list is to have more international, efficient collaboration. What keeps you going and motivates you? Just every day uh, being able to do this work and, and the fact that it's needed um, so much. I mean, every day, you know, I get so many messages on, on any given day, including holidays. I get messages of, you know, somebody who is grateful for for the documentation we do or the support we provide. That really helps. Um, that is something that we that reminds me every day that this work is very important. And what is the, the top skill that you need to do your job and how do you get better at it? The top skill would be certainly um, to be able to be more efficient and uh, sleep more. I, I mean, if I can sleep more, I will have, be more you know, efficient during the day as well. But because I like I mentioned, we work around the clock. So it's sometimes like I'm up at 2 a.m. talking to somebody about something that happens somewhere <laughs> that happens quite a lot. So, yes, definitely efficiency and more sleep. And, and your parting message to any women journalists listening to this podcast? Oftentimes women journalists and especially LGBTQ journalists, we hear this a lot from them that they feel isolated and they feel like no one's going to hear their problem or um, no one will have, uh, you know, the kind of support that they need. So I think that what I want to say is like, yes, it's really noisy and competitive out there, but find allies and you will find people will support you if you reach out. Just just a personal question. Has that been useful for you personally doing that? Absolutely. I mean, I think that the coalition essentially was formed uh, really out of that process because when I, you know, I was in exile and then I had, I, I was covering Iraq at the time and um, you know, I went back to New York and had panic attacks. And uh, I, if I would not have, you know, reached out to some of my mentors, um, colleagues, uh, senior journalists, uh, you know, I would not have known that they would have wanted to support uh, me and, you know, wanted to tell me their stories as well. So and I think the whole idea of a support system came out from that. Lots of strong messages there. And it's it's been great to speak to you about this today, Kieran. I hope next time we talk, uh, you've got a report that has much lower numbers when, when it comes to cases of violence. And hopefully some of the words that we've spoken out uh, about today will contribute to that. So thank you very much for all of your time and insights. Thank you so much, Jacob. I really appreciate it. And me too. I hope that we can have another conversation where we're like, look, this is uh, we have been able to improve the situation. Great to speak to Kiran there, and I don't think we can underestimate the importance of solidarity in this conversation. And that for me is a key highlight from today. I have learned from this discussion that it is in newsrooms' interest to think about this problem because attacks on women result in press freedom limitations. Create support mechanisms for your women journalists, and if you are a woman who has experienced anything like we've spoken about today, make sure you're reaching out to organisations like the Coalition for the Women in Journalism for extra support. If you like what you heard today, you can check out more of our episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And all you have to do is search and subscribe to the journalism.co.uk podcast. And if you'd like to feature on the show, again, my email is jacob at journalism.co.uk. But that's all we have time for today. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.